amen. And I have the mic turned on. I couldn't say amen yet because it would have just fallen short. Hey, how we all doing, Grace Hills? Good to see you all. Uh, good to see those that are visiting, those that are visitors and guests. If you are new, my name is Simon. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. Grateful that you came to worship with us, to hear God's word, to sing together, to pray together, to hang out. That's great. For those watching online, uh, grateful for you. Uh, thankful that you are watching, that we have provided an avenue that allows you to hear God's word and worship with us. Uh, that we know sometimes that you're on vacation or you're on trips and you get to watch the service when you're away. Or those that are going through difficult times where you just can't be here due to physical restraints, we're glad that we can serve you in that way. Um, we're in the book of James. We're on week two as we move in. Uh, I'll tell you what, we really underestimated your ability to read and write, and we only printed a few of these off, and so we, we got massive demand for more of the reading plan coming up. So we printed off a ton in the back. If you want to follow along with where we're going for this entire series, it's a once a week kind of got this reading plan, grab those, go through it, and it'll help you grow in that. Now, I've been told, and I agree with, I have always had a problem with authority. Uh, not a big fan of authority growing up. Uh, I remember as a fifth grader, uh, you know, because I was, you know, head of the class there as a fifth grader, and I remember after school, we were walking kind of across the campus to go home, and for whatever reason, me and my friends thought it'd be a good idea to have a, a water spit fight, and apparently not all the teachers agreed that was a good idea, and so a teacher came up who wasn't my teacher, grabbed my arm and said, come with me, and I distinctly remember saying, no, you're not my mom, and walking home so big and proud. And when I came to school the next day, I walked into the principal's office where I promptly got suspended. And I remember always having a problem with authority, always not liking people telling me what to do. I didn't like people being in control of who I am. I didn't like it when someone told me that I was wrong. And so I just had this problem all the time. I didn't like uh, laws. I would break laws. I just didn't care. I'm like, this is dumb. I can do my own thing. Now, let's be really clear what the root of the problem is and was. It's pride. It's absolutely pride. Pride says, I know better. My ideas are good. They are great. They are right. And yours are wrong. Well, unless, of course, you agree with me. And then you're just fine like everybody else. But it was pride that, that led me down that road. Now, I'm guessing from the smiles that I'm seeing in the room, that I am not the only one <laughs> that has this affliction in their life. And that maybe you don't like the idea of people telling you what to do, of not being in control, the, the master of your ship, the controller behind the wheel, and you don't like it when those go that way. But you got to maybe ask the question. You're like, well, Simon, how did someone who hates authority who hates rules, who hates laws, who, who doesn't trust people in high government positions, become a pastor of a church. How did that weird thing happen where that's kind of what you do when you preach God's word, right? Well, I'm going to answer that question at the end of the sermon. So you'll have to kind of maybe see, see, that's how you keep them here. You can't get up and leave. If I, if I throw a teaser out, it's going to lock you in those seats. That's what I'm going to do. Here's the thing. Um, James wants to put this very idea in front of the men and women that are in this place. Uh, not only that, he wants to put it in front of us. He wants us to understand this, 
this problem of pride and what it can do in the hearts of the men and women that are in Jerusalem that have been spread out. And so here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we actually have uh, brand new Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, please take one. We'd love for you to have that as a gift so you can have God's Word and you can read it. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like as well. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's go ahead and jump into this section. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. I thank you for this passage. I thank you that you have allowed me to legitimately wrestle through this section of Scripture to try to understand to the best of my ability through the power of your Holy Spirit what you want to say to the men and women here today. Lord, if there are things in my notes that, that are truly not from you, that you would take those from my notes, that you would take them from my mind and from my mouth. Lord, I ask that this would be an encouragement to the men and women that are here today, that we would have a deeper, richer understanding of who you are, that we would understand what it means to grow in our faith and to have maturity, that we would represent you well, that we would show the world what a transformed life saved by Jesus Christ looks like. Pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> Now, you have to keep in mind, as James writes this letter, he starts in a way that I think is actually very appropriate, and he keeps kind of doing this. He says, my beloved brothers. What does that mean? doesn't mean he hates them. doesn't mean he wants to discourage them. It means that he loves them. It means that he cares for these individuals, and he wants to encourage them in their walk, and that these are people that love Jesus Christ. And so, what he ends up doing is he, he, he starts with this statement, but he's really kind of starting at the end. He's kind of starting at where it ends up when this plays out. And he's kind of talking about the fruit in the believer's life. And James kind of writes in a way that feels not so linear at times. And so the challenge that I have today is to try to make it feel linear, even though it's written a little out of order. And it's going to connect with the different parts that we're going to be in. And he's going to give this saying that I think most people would say, that sounds like wisdom. That sounds like a sound statement that makes sense. This idea that we would be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I'll just say this. Um, I name my sermons because it's good to put them online and have a name for them and stuff. And the names you guys don't really care about. But I hastily said the name of this sermon was hearers and doers. And that was just the wrong sermon title. 
So if you want, you can take your pen, you can scratch out the top, and you can call it Quick, Slow, Slow. That's the title that I really should have given this sermon, because I think it makes sense, and we're going to look at what Slow, Quick, Quick looks like and how that's actually not good. So that's where we want to go today. So he's talking to these men and women about this wisdom. They were born in Jerusalem. They were raised under the law. They would have heard God's law growing up, and so... um, Sections like Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3, Proverbs uh, 10, 19, uh, and Proverbs 14, 29 would say things like, When words are many, transgressions is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lip is prudent. Oh, that seems important to do. Or, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So they would understand this statement it would kind of resonate with them already off the bat. And that's the beauty of what James is doing, is he's writing to a predominantly Jewish community that would receive this. We have similar sayings like this, right? I've heard this my whole life because I talk too much. We have two ears and one mouth, Simon, so you need to listen twice as much as you talk. You're like, I've never heard that. That's because you actually have restraint. That's, that's a compliment. So we have these sayings. But what I want to talk about is... This is a byproduct of actually a deeper relationship where this plays out in the believer's life. So we can think of this as how we interact with each other, right? And that's true that it will play out that way, but that's not where James is going. That's not the thrust of what he's trying to communicate to these individuals. What he's saying is that if you have the relationship right where you play this out with the right individual, it will pour into all the relationships that you have. And so he's really talking about something larger. Now, the way that the structure is written that we see that there's a couple of things. So last week, we ended in verse 18, and it hit this idea called the word of truth that has been brought forth by the word of truth. We'll get into another section that talks about the implanted word that's there as well. We'll also hit on the perfect law or the law of liberty. So he makes this statement but it's bracketed between the idea of the word of God and the law. So we know that he'll kind of vacillate between the idea of the gospel and the law that was written, okay? And we know that when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about Jesus, and Jesus was known as the word, exactly, right? So that's what we're talking about. He was the incarnate word of God and spoke the truth of God in everything that he said. So we're still talking about God's truth. So this is revolving around that major idea. It's the same kind of thing that we see when we talk about the implanted word or the word of truth. It's this idea of being born again. This is what Jesus would talk to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3 when he has that big discussion that you need to be born again if you wanted to see the kingdom of God, if you wanted to be a part of the kingdom of God, that you would need to be something different, that new life comes from believing in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Christ. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. And that is what enables us to live this new life that's led by the Spirit. Now, what we're going to talk about and where James is going to go before he gets into the main teaching in this letter, that this is really the backbone for the rest of this letter. That everything kind of hinges on this idea. Because if you don't understand this concept, as he tells you to live a life in this way, it's kind of not going to make sense if you don't understand what he's saying and what it's about. That there is 
there's a lot of things that God would want us to grow in, and, and I'm going I'm to do some theological work this morning. We're going to talk about some big terms, and we'll get there in a second, but we need to understand what we're talking about. So as he launches in this idea, he kind of wants to put in the forefront of how they should be. And you're like, I don't understand that this, this, this uh, quick, slow, slow concept. Well, we do it all the time. If you've ever had a kid or a friend and they walk out of the door what you, before they leave, when you have a kid who just got their license, you say, drive safe, make good choices, right? Don't we say that? Please make good choices. They're like, I haven't even, like, the choice to open the door? I haven't even gotten in a car. I haven't even had a choice in front of me to make yet. And that's kind of what James is doing is like, you know, you want to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You're like, well, what am I, like, it's not even there yet, but he's going to get there. And we do that because we want them to understand, to have in the front of their mind that we need to think about what we do. So, what does this statement mean? What is he talking about? He's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about submitting to God and what He would want for our lives. This message, this, the gospel, the incarnate Word of God, that He would move back and forth, between the law and the gospel. So he's going to flip around. So you're going to see that. Don't freak out. But like I said before, that pride is the problem. So as he's talking about the Word of God, he's going to address the pride and the heart of the individuals that he's writing to. And what he's saying ultimately is that the solution to this pride is the Word of God, is the truth of God, is the wisdom of God, as we would talk about. See, here's the thing. Our default is not to be quick to listen, is it? That's not really our default. You ever talk with somebody and you're having a conversation and you want to explain your really valid point and you watch their eyes glaze over and you know what they're doing. What are they doing? They're trying to think of what they're going to say next to be really good. That's going to figure out how to cut into that conversation. It's going to defend their position. And, he, and that's what he's saying. He's like, within this, it's, we don't want to listen because listening means that we have to hear something that we think that we might already know. This idea of being quick to speak means that we've already made up our mind on whatever it is that we're talking about, and I don't really need any more information. As a matter of fact, the Lord has blessed you by being in my presence because I'm going to change your mind so you'll actually understand the real truth. That's what we're doing. That's how that works. See, the problem is, is that when we have those kinds of conversations, what happens when it doesn't go the way we want? When I am slow to listen and I am quick to talk, I become quick to become what? Angry. Because what's happening in that moment right there is that you're telling me that I'm wrong. You're telling me that I'm not right. You're telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about. And so what happens is we start to get angry, we get frustrated. And we start to lash out. And some people go in more aggressive. Some people go more passive aggressive. But there is an anger that wells up because you're realizing that we have a disagreement, and you stand here and I stand here and there's a problem. And something needs to change because here's the problem. We both can't be right. Someone's wrong. Now, mind you, the, the Bible's not saying that anger is bad in this situation, is it? It's saying being slow to anger. See, so the problem really isn't anger. The problem is the anger of man, as James would say. That's actually the problem, is the anger of man, because the, the anger of man is sinful, it's broken, and it's full of pride. See, that leads to unrighteousness. I'm just saying, like, 
the only thing that leads to righteousness is the God's righteousness. That's the only thing that leads there. See, the pride of man is not good. The, the pride of man is about protecting our image, how we present ourselves, how we see ourselves, who we are. It will not tolerate being attacked because we are right in our own eyes. As we talk about the word of God, that's what James is saying. As we hear the word of God, we must be quick to hear it. We must be quick to seek it and to have it in our lives. We must be slow to try to defend our position in light of what we've just said. And if we do that, we will be slow to become angry when we realize that there are things in my life that are problematic in how I love and follow Jesus with my life. So we need to hear it, we need to accept it, and we need to obey it. So the solution that James gives is something that kills anger. It kills pride. What is it? Well, James calls it meekness. We can also call it humility. See, the gospel is pretty offensive. If you think about the, the, the basis of the gospel, it's kind of offensive. It's saying, hey, you are absolutely and unbelievably loved, but you are a broken sinner that is in rebellion against God, that cannot save yourself, and that you need Jesus, and you can't do it in your own, and if you don't have the love, grace, and mercy of God, then you are hopeless. Want to come to Jesus? Like that, that's a, it's, it's an offensive message because you're saying everything about you is broken. Everything about you is unrighteous and that only God is. And so within that, there is a moment where you have to understand who you are in light of God. That you're not as great as you think. And as a young man, I was like, come on, I look in a mirror every day. Clearly, you're seeing the same thing that I'm seeing. The greatness that I look at is the same greatness that you would see, right? And all my teachers said no. <laughs> but that's what we do. Until we can humbly repent and admit that we're in need of God, then we will never truly understand what Jesus did on the cross. As a matter of fact, we'll never actually understand the necessity for Jesus to die on the cross until we can come to a place of humility where we can admit that we are broken and lost and in need of that Savior. We'll never comprehend it. Well, if I can do a bunch of good works, why would he send his son to die? That seems weird. We can't. We need him to do it. We have to admit that our way is not God's way. And that God's way is good, right, and perfect. And that we must submit to him. And what he's saying is not just enough to hear God's word. It's not just enough to, to be around the word of God and to show up in a church. And we'll get there in a second. But we must accept it and obey it. It's that meekness and humility that James is talking about. And the picture that James is trying to communicate is the idea of taking anything off of in our lives that's not from God. Anything that would uh, cause sin or rebellion or pride or distrust in who he is. We've got to take that off. Well, why? Because God, he knows what's bad for us. He knows what's not healthy for us. He knows what keeps us fractured in our relationship with him. 
He understands that. And when he says, this is bad for you, it's not because he's unloving. It's actually because he is so loving that he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to remain in a fractured state. He wants us to have the teleos that we talked about, to be in a full and complete state, existing in that way with him. That's what he's desiring. Now, here's what I want to make sure we understand. Um, Sanctification and justification are two different things. And so sometimes when we talk about the idea of sanctification, people confuse that with justification. So I want to throw some some things up here. So um, I got these out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's a great book. If you want to know more about theology, it's a great book that I recommend. Um, So justification is defined as this by Wayne Grudem. It's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. We are talking about salvation. We are talking about being saved by God, being brought into the family of God. Justification is my favorite thing because it means I am saved and my sins are forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross. That's what he did. He he became a substitute. He took my sins. He died for them. And then he gives me his righteousness. And now I can go before the king of the universe. Now, sanctification is defined this way is a process, a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now, you might get hung up on the God and man part, and so let me just kind of just give you a quick uh, understanding of what that means. Um, it's not saying that God, I, here I am, I'm going to do all my sanctification in my life. That's not what it's saying. That through the Holy Spirit, as he convicts us, as he opens our eyes to the truth of God's word, and he pushes into our lives in areas that are not in line with who he is, that our participation is to what? To submit and trust. That is it. We're not doing anything. We are sitting under that in submission to who God is. And that's something that we wrestle with all the time. Don't we ever wonder like, why do I keep coming back to this sin? Why do I keep doing this thing? Why do I keep acting this way? But why do I feel convicted? Because God loves you and he's walking you in growth and maturity in your life so you would represent him more and live a more teleos life. So let me throw up this other slide that might help. Uh, You can throw that next slide up there. Uh, It's the differences between justification and sanctification. So justification is a legal standing that we have with God. So it says for the wages of sin is death, right? So there's this legal standing. It's kind of like this courtroom scene. It's something that we have. We're standing in it. Sanctification is an internal condition that we have in our hearts. As As the Bible would say, take off the old self, put on the new self you have in Christ. That's what it's talking about. Justification is once for all time, right? So that happened. That happened on the cross when he said it is finished, right? That was taken care of on the cross. When he died for our sins, that was taken care of. Sanctification is continuous. Justification is entirely God's work by grace alone through faith alone, right? It's the work of God. He does all the work. So with sanctification, we cooperate. That's what I talked about earlier, that God is convicting and growing us and showing us his word, and we are called to trust him in every day of our life. We have decisions every day. Will I believe God and what his word says? Will I trust him in who he is? Or I'll decide to do what I want to do. We have that battle every day. We've all felt it. Justification is perfect in this lifetime, perfect and complete, lacking nothing in the work of what he did on the cross. We don't have to earn anything to be justified. It has all been done through Jesus Christ. 
Sanctification is not perfect in this life because it's a process that we are working through. Yes, we are sanctified, and the Bible talks about sanctification at some level as something that's been taking place, but is also something that is taking place in our lives daily, okay? And justification is the same in all Christians. And we see that sanctification is greater in some than in others. You're like, I don't believe that. Read Hebrews 11. Who is it talking about? All these men and women who trusted God and walked in faith and believed Him. So we see that it looks different. There's a different maturity in all those different individuals. So, with that understanding, we have a better idea of what justification means for a believer, that we are saved. It's about our salvation. And sanctification is about growing in our faith and who we are in Jesus. You good on that? You're like, no. That's why life groups exist. You can just battle that out all night. It'll be great. So as we talk about the implanted word, we talk about it, it's the gospel. That word, word, is actually gospel in that moment. Um, this is the message of Jesus, the word of God, as he is called in the book of John. And if you look at the structure in verse 21, it actually says this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Um, it's kind of Romans 10, uh, 9, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved, right? That's what he's talking about. So what is happening here is what you really see is you see the process of salvation. That one, you would repent of your sins and admit that you're in need of God. That you can't save yourself and you need someone to save you. Two, it's receiving that in humility. It's humbling yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand this, I've got a problem, Jesus is the solution, I humbly accept that. What is three? That's what saves us confessing and believing. That's what saves us. That's who we are in Jesus. And James is going to keep moving down that train of thought and not just hearing the word and thinking that that's enough. So let me, let me bring this into where we might be today and how we've seen that. And I've been around a lot of churches, met a lot of people, seen a lot of people. It's not enough to show up in church, listen to a sermon and go, oh, I must be saved. I went to school. I learned some math. I'm not a mathematician at all. I can read English, but it doesn't mean I'm an English major. It's not enough to come to a small group or a Bible study and sit there and hear a bunch of truth and go, oh, it's all good, I must be saved. No. We have to not only hear it, we have to accept it, and then we have to obey it. That's what it means in the life of a believer. He goes as far to say that you are deceiving yourself if you think that just showing up, ticking a box, and living in a tradition is what it really means to have salvation. That's not what it is, that we are to live this thing out. He's going to keep hitting this over and over and over again, that we act on the truth of God, that it transforms our lives, that we apply this to our lives in who we are. Because if God's word is perfect... Wouldn't we want that for our lives? Wouldn't we want to live under that authority? We have to admit that we are not perfect. So it says that we have to be quick to hear the word of God. And as we hear it, we let it penetrate our heart. We don't defend our position. We don't let the anger well up quickly, but realize that God loves us, and that anger is unwarranted when it comes to how he would want us to live our lives we've been born again through Jesus, we have the Spirit. Our heart is going to beat new. We have a new heart. We have new blood. We have a new body. It's going to produce different fruit than our old life. 
And that can be a process at times. You know, when you first come to faith, it's kind of like the big things that are in the way. You kind of deal with those, right? And then as you deal with those, you start to realize, like, well, I moved this boulder, and I found 12 more boulders underneath that big boulder. And then I look those boulders up, and there's like 20 more boulders underneath those little boulders. There's all these things that God is revealing, and he does it in these ways that he allows you. As you deal with this one, it moves you to the next place where you can trust him and deal with the next thing. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about growth. We're talking about maturity is what we're talking about. The drum that he's going to keep beating is live out your faith. Live out the gospel in your lives. It's the natural byproduct of being changed. 24 and 25 gives us an example of a mirror. The Bible is a mirror that shows us who we are in light of God. That's what the Bible does. So sometimes we can think, the Bible's all about me. Well, no, it's all about this God that we worship. And it all points at this guy, Jesus, that came and died for us. That's what it's about. But what we find is we see God's holiness and we see his perfection. We see that he does all things right. We see his love and his grace and his mercy. And then what happens is as we're reading it, what does it do? We start to see our imperfections, our brokenness in light of who God is. It's hard. People say, I, when they sit in the presence of God, I'm going to fall to their face and worship because they're realizing who they are. Like, John writes this letter in Revelation the best friend of Jesus, right? And he sees him, you're like, ah, oh, what's up, bro? Is that how he responds? He sees him as glorified Satan. He falls on the ground to worship him as a dead man because he saw his life in contrast to him, that he is unworthy, that he is not righteous to stand in that presence. See, we love mirrors, don't we? You're like, no, yes, because we have them everywhere. Every bathroom, in your hallway, in your living room, in your car, in your whatever, your purse if you have one of those, in your weird side carry, not fanny pack, fanny pack that's like really hip now that I hate, that just drives me up the wall. That's a personal rant. It's not biblical. But we have them everywhere. Well, what, is a, what does a mirror do? A mirror shows us what we can't physically see on our own. It shows us what we don't know. That's what a mirror does. In a car, it shows us what we can't see behind us. When we go on that nice date or we go out, we want to like look in a mirror to make sure we don't look like someone that they don't want to be with. We want to look like someone they do want to be with. And so as James paints out this idea of a mirror, what he's saying is that it would be foolish to go stand in front of a mirror and to see that you have stuff in your teeth and you've got dirt on your face and your hair's all crazy and your shirt's all unkept and you did the wrong button so your shirt's all whacked out, that would be weird to be like, it's good, and just walk away. That's not good. There's a problem. There's a problem that exists if you look in the mirror. And what he's saying is that is the word of God. The word of God is just like that mirror. Now, I didn't come up with it, so it's not unique to me, but I do say it all the time. You don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you. It reads your heart over and over and over again. When you look into the perfect law, or the teleos law, it does something. It highlights how broken we truly are. So as James is talking about the wholeness of teleos, it's in contrast to the fractures in our life. It exposes those fractures. 
But because God is so good and loving, he cares enough to help us find where those fractures are and to lay those fractures down at the foot of the cross and to allow the gospel to heal us is what he's calling us to. So the word of God will become like food and water to the believer. As you watch God work in your life, you can't help but want the word of God in your life. See, God's word brings freedom. He calls it the law of liberty. The law of freedom is what he's talking about. Now, this idea of the law being freedom may feel highly counterintuitive. That's because you live in America. We, we think of freedom in different ways, don't we? How do we think of freedom in America? I can do anything I want, whenever I want, however I want. Only then will I truly have freedom. You know what's wrong with that? There's a definition. That's called anarchy. There aren't many societies that actually have thrived under anarchy, have there? Matter of fact, when I was in Seattle, there's a thing called the Chop Chaz, and that was like, we're going to do whatever we want with no laws. It was a huge disaster, and a number of people died. It was horrible. Like, from a, just an intellectual standpoint, every major society that has ever existed has had laws and rules and regulations and consequences and parameters, and they have succeeded, haven't they? We have them in our society. We have to have those or else it goes sideways. Now, but it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that because the reality is what we're talking about is that we have been created, and because we've been created, there are parameters that we were made to actually exist in. You're like, Simon, that doesn't make any sense. My mind is melting right now. Freedom means I can do whatever I want. All right, let's take the Western philosophy of freedom and apply it to just a, a, an analogy here. Think about a fish. A fish is confined to water, right? It's restrained to water. A fish was designed to have gills that is allowed to breathe, to pull oxygen out of water so it can breathe, so it can live. It's designed in such a way that it swims to where it's highly effective in the water. Its scales allow it to let water go off. There's very little drag on a fish, and it can move. So depending on if it's a fresh water, it's the confines of that lake or pond or whatever it is, or if it's the ocean, it's the confines of any shore. Now, if we took the Western philosophy of what freedom looks like, the loving thing to do to that fish would be what? To pull it out of its restraints, to pull it out of its confines, and to take it and say, you need to see the rest of the world, fish. You need to, you need to spread your legs and run. You're free. And now you're a fish murderer. Because the fish, while it may last for a few seconds, will, this is great. It will die. And so the thing that you think is freedom is actually killing that fish. Where can a fish be free? In the water. How it was designed and made to function. My friends, you were designed and made to have purpose. You are meant to reflect the image of God in everything you say and everything you do and how you respond. You were meant to worship God completely and point to Him as being glorious above all other things. His law, His perfect law, is the real truth of how we were designed to live. Under God, protected by God, with the right boundaries in our life that allow us to live a life of freedom. 
And when you go outside of that, you are just like a fish that's being pulled out of the water and thrown on the shore. And you think it's great and you think it's okay for a little while, but we know where those decisions end, don't we? Any amount of life experience shows that they don't lead to joy. They don't lead to life. They lead to hurt and to pain and to anguish and disappointment and ultimately to death. See what James is saying? He's like, this is a good thing to be under God's perfect law because it's meant to keep us safe so we can live the way that we are meant to. It's freeing. And then he says that if you live in this way, that there are blessings that come from that and living in this way. Now, when we think of blessings, I think, I think we tend to think of like monetary blessings is what we tend to think of. And that's very prosperity gospel. We would reject that and say, no, that's not how that works. But there is this thing that God brings us joy in when we live in this way, the freedom that comes from living in joy in who we are and how we were designed to be. There's also this thing that happens as it, as it creates teleos in our life. It creates a wholeness and a connectedness to God in greater and more profound ways. And as that happens, there sometimes are monetary blessings that God gives because he's just a good God, that that's gravy. But those things pale in comparison and knowing and understanding and existing in relationship with God the Father. And the byproduct is a blessing to those around you because as you live this out, you live in such a way to where you show them who Jesus is through how you live your lives. See, if you think that the law is bad, all you have to do is go to Matthew 5, 5, the Sermon on the Mount. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law is not bad. It just feels bad because we can't do it. That's why it feels bad. We don't have the ability in our own power to fulfill the law. It's not until we have the Holy Spirit by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, that we have the ability to even live this out now. See, only Jesus could do it, which is why we are so desperately in need of him for our lives. He's going to end this section talking about true or pure religion. And it seems like a weird shift, but bear with me as he talks about what this looks like, because he's going to model this after something. He uses this word three times when he talks about religion, uh, and there's two different words. So one he uses one way, and then the other two he uses another way in this section. And so what he says is that the negative way is when he's talking about religion, he's talking about the word would be kind of translated uh, piety, that there is something in me that can follow the law. He's actually using a negative way of describing this religion that we would turn to, that is about me and my works and my ability and this idea of pride. See, he's like, if you can't control your tongue, if you can't control your words, what he's saying from the beginning, you're not really submitting to God and you're lying to yourself. That's what he's talking about in that moment. The other term that he uses when he speaks of religion is great. It's worship. What is true religion? What is true worship? What does it mean to truly worship God? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself from being corrupted by the world. And what it says is good, right, and perfect. And you're like, okay, so I'm confused. We're talking about the law, and now I gotta go find orphans and widows? Like, what is he saying? 
Our lives are meant to be lived under the control of God's wisdom. Because it's perfect. There is no better way to live in, in, in which he has given us. He is, yes, he is telling us to care for orphans and widows. That's something that we wouldn't say he's not saying. He is saying that, but he's saying more than that. It's also telling us something which is the bigger picture, which is always the gospel. That's what he's talking about. Um, there was no more vulnerable group in that day and in that age than orphans and widows. They had no protection. They had nobody to bring them income. They had no home. They had no government handouts. They couldn't protect themselves. They were marginalized in that society. Kids were worthless until they became adults. Women couldn't do anything. It was not a great place to be. It's so weird to go and visit them in their affliction. Let me, let me help you understand something. We are orphans and widows. We are the orphans and the widows. Because of sin and the brokenness of this world, we are the orphans and the widows of this world. We cannot protect ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We have nothing in our own ability to do anything. We are completely vulnerable to the hurt and the pain and the brokenness of this world because of sin. And yet, what do we see? Jesus came and visited us in our what? Affliction. He came down. He saw us. He cared for us. He met us where we were. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we were meant to die. He absorbed the wrath, wrath that we had earned. He dies in our place, giving us his righteousness so we can be children of God. He met our needs. He was not corrupted by the world. He was quick to hear the word of God. He was slow to speak. He was slow to anger. He lived in perfect and complete submission to the word of God in every aspect of his life, the thing that we were meant to do. And he gives that freely, that life, that hope, that relationship, that eternity with God to anyone that would call on his name for salvation. So what is he telling us to be? Be like Jesus. Be like my, my, James is saying, be like my brother. He's the one you want to be like. Live in a way that you go see people in their affliction, in their hurt, in their brokenness. Do that with the body. Do that with the believers. And do that with the world outside of you. As you see men and women that are still orphans and widows in this world, take the love of Christ and how you speak and how you think and how you act and how you obey the word of God in every aspect of your life, and you will see the world changed. It will look differently. This dark world needs the truth that we possess. So, to answer the question at the beginning of the sermon, how in the world did someone like me become a pastor, someone who hates authority, who is rebellious in nature, who doesn't like rules, who wants to break all of them, become a pastor? Well, it's pretty simple. It was the word of God. That is, I sat under the teaching of godly men who preached the gospel. As I read God's word, as I argued with every single pastor that I was ever under <laughs> because I thought I was so right, they showed me God's truth. And I went from slow, quick, quick 
quick, slow, slow in my life. And I started taking a position of humility, realizing how desperately I needed God and how I didn't have the ability in my own to save myself, that I wasn't as intelligent as I thought I was, and that the wisdom of God is far greater than the wisdom of Simon. It changed everything that I did in my life. If you think that I'm arrogant and cocky now, boy, there's a lot of work that's taken place here. <laughs> that's why I'm okay with talking about sanctification, because it's a process. And God has been working in my life, and he's been slowly maturing me all these times. We can play the game. And what I mean when I say play the game is we can come to church, hear the word of God, look in the mirror, and be like, eh, I'm good. We can play the fire insurance game. But God loves you so much, and he's calling you to see truly the fractures in your life and to lay those down and submit to the word of God. If you're new here for the first time and you're like, I'm not a believer, I have, man, there's a lot that you just threw at me. I would say this, there's no coincidence that you're here and God has brought you here to hear the word of God. And if you were to turn to him and submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you too can be saved and you can grow in your sanctification. You can receive justification today. My brothers and sisters that are here today, I want to end with this. Where are you playing games with God? Where are you looking into his perfect laws, perfect word, and refusing to submit to it? What is God calling you to right now? We have the mirror that we can take everywhere with us. Everywhere we go, we can bring God's word and we can ask the question, what would God want for me in this? Is there